Welcome to Stageworthy. I'm Phil Rickaby, the host of this podcast. This is episode 329. Stageworthy is a one-person operation, so not only do I arrange the guests, I edit the show, I promote it, and I also created the music that you're hearing now. I also shoulder all of the financial responsibilities for keeping the show going. So if you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it. There are a few ways that you can do that. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those ratings and reviews help new people to find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And you can also leave a tip for the show by dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. I will put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the website or in your podcast app. But one of the most important things that you can do, even more important than ratings, reviews, or even financial support, is to share on social media. Even retweeting this episode helps. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 329 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to follow me online, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guests this week are Stephen Elliott Jackson and Netta Rose. Stephen is the playwright of The Garden of Allah, and Netta is one of the stars of the show. The Garden of Allah is part of the 2022 Toronto Fringe Festival, running from July 6th to 17th. Here's our conversation. So, Stephen, you've, I mean, two shows in the Fringe. Is that, I mean, that's a little bit greedy, don't you think? <laughs> I would say I'm being greedy, but I have to always remind myself for the first 17 years of being in that lottery and never being picked either for a spot or the wait list. Um, <laughs> okay. The, the other thing is, is that what happens is my partner and I both enter, but we always enter in different categories. And so we never, ever fudge up the lottery in any sense. Right. We, we made sure about that. And so I'm tr- uh, he enters in the kids fringe and I enter nice. in the adult. Yeah. I am giving you a hard, I mean, it's, it, you're not the only person uh, 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 I've, I've spoken to a couple of people in the past. I've had a couple of shows in the fringe. That wasn't their choice, but it's like, listen, to have a kid's show in there, the kid's fringe is so important as far as I'm concerned. Like for many kids, it's their first exposure to theater. So kid's fringe, we need quality work and having your work in there is a, is, is a huge thing. The show that we wanted to talk about mostly, it's the garden of Allah. Is that right? That's correct. Perfect. Um, so, Stephen, would you like to give me the elevator pitch for the Garden of Allah? Sure. Uh, so it's 1922, and Allah Nasimova has um, a very a, a queer, wonderful artist, filmmaker, has decided to make a version of Salome into a, into a film uh, and decides to recruit her somewhat husband, Charles, <laughs> and her lover, Natasha, to help with the film. It doesn't quite go as planned. <laughs> uh, there's a, a, a there's a lot at, at, at stake um, and a lot that rides on it working, but also a lot on society to accept it. So yes. Hmm. Now Salome, uh, uh, if I if I recall my film history, it, I mean people had been trying to make Salome as a film for a while. I think there was at least one silent version uh, that was done, 
And this is, I believe, pre-Hayes code, which means that they could get away with a whole lot. Um, but uh, I love that that era, the, 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 that silent era heading towards talkies, but not quite there yet. Um, what, what is it about this story, Stephen, that, that, that grabbed you? Well, and, and that's the one you're talking about. That's the Salome we're mm. talking about in this, in this film or in this play. Uh, and what really attracted me because there was this in- incredible queer world going on in Hollywood that just existed, right? And that's what really intrigued me. It's what follows after when the Hayes Code and the, the censorship starts to come into play that starts to rob those voices of being able to speak again. And they wouldn't speak again for like 80 years, like not in the full force that these artists did. And that's what really intrigued me. Uh, I always like to look at queer history, uh, like more like a roller coaster. Um, sometimes we have this idea of like, Hey, this is where it starts and we move on. And it's like, no, 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 that's not how lives work. The queer lives have existed throughout history, either at a great, at good points and bad points throughout history. And it's just a case of whether or not society has accepted them or not. And so that's why this story really appealed to me because we do have this idea that uh, queer films have not existed past before like 19, like 69. And it's like, no, they did. And they existed in so many different ways. And this is one particular example uh, and just what happened to it. It's interesting because there's the, the, the erasure of the queer voice uh, over time. Like, as you said, the, 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 beginnings of, of of the film industry there were there were many queer voices and many queer stories being told um as and well many as women too and, and many yeah, women yeah um there were many strong stories uh that, that were being told um that were so the the you know as often happens the more conservative uh get their backs up and decide well this isn't permitted this is this is too much we can't have this they freak out and and uh, then they bring in something like the Hayes code which stifles creativity for years and it wasn't just queer uh like queer sexuality like all sex like the 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 insanity of like uh uh, uh that kiss this like the the ways that people had to to insinuate attraction and things like that it's the Hayes code was wildly uh, uh, over overreaching, but um, very much so. And, and I think what's interesting is that the films I've actually grown to love over the years are those filmmakers who dare to challenge those notions. Uh, and so like, for instance, like for my, my favorite era of kind of queer filmmaking is like 1955 to 1969, because they are these filmmakers trying to tell stories without the words to say them, but the audiences were starting to pick it up. And I am just absolutely fascinated by this. But this era was fascinating because they were being quite overt about what they're saying. Well, I mean, yeah, there, there's there's a lot of really, really overt sexuality in in in, in silent films. We think of the uh, the comedies; those are the ones that 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 we think of in terms of silent film often now. But the drama, the romances, we're very, we're highly. Uh, 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 sexual, highly uh, 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 like the storytelling was 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 really amazing and visual, and, and and so the sex is sex, and it's 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 sexy stuff, sexy sex. Phil, come on, you could talk better than that. Um, but uh, it's the 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 silent era was was more than just what we think, and so the the story of Salome as a film um, is is pretty juicy and steamy. It is. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, there's a lot of talk about it in the, in the, in the play, just about what the story is. And it's, it's not something that 
is doesn't sound like a sellable thing <laughs> sometimes. But um, that, the other cool thing about working on this this piece was also to really explore these three characters and how they fit into this time period, how they feel, fit into the queer world, uh, and ultimately how their lives were affected by the making of this movie. Hmm. Netta, I just want to bring you in and and I want to talk to you a little bit about about how this story uh, resonates for you. Yes, I mean, I like Stephen. I'm so interested in in queer history and particularly in these cycles of queer history and the things that that are erased. And I, I think it's particularly relevant now. You know, we're looking at a play that is set exactly a hundred years ago, and it really makes us question this myth of the endless forward march of progress. You know, I think it's such an important thing to look at this beautiful period in, in the history of Hollywood where queerness was, if not completely public and accepted, certainly a very open secret. And as Stephen and you both talked about, you know, displayed on film in ways that we might not expect looking back from a hundred years in the future. Um, and that that could be taken away so quickly when people in power became afraid. That's something I, I really resonate with and I find incredibly contemporary in this piece that Stephen has written. As a person who's, who's uh, uh, I've, I've done a lot of watching of, of silent films. So years ago, I was involved mm-hmm. with a company trying to create uh, plays in the style of silent film. So we watched a lot of silent film um, just to, to sort of like find our style and things like that. Do you have, have you watched, have you been watching some, some silent films? And if so, what, what films have really resonated for you both? Ah, well, I'll tell you, I have made a specific point of not watching uh, the Nazim of Salome while we were working on this production. I didn't want to have the real people in my mind. You know, as much as this is a, a historical play and, and based on real people and, and their lives and their artistry, it is this, this beautiful fictionalized story that Stephen has created. And I wanted to make sure to that I wanted to do justice to the characters as he had written them and, and not be trying to uh, recreate anything that we saw on screen. But I do love the silent film era, particularly in terms of the design, which is, you know, I play the mm. character of Natasha Rambova. Um, you know, I'm pronouncing her name like she's really Russian. Of course, she was <laughs> She was not. She was a Midwestern girl named Winifred. But uh, that enticement of, uh, you know, as they would have thought of it, the exotic was, was all over it. But, you know, the designs, she was the costume designer for Salome, the costume production designer for a number of, of massive films with NGM and, and directed by Cecil DeMille in the era. And I think, you know, when we're looking at silent films, the design, the costume design, the lighting are all the more important because that's what's telling the story. You know, the facial expressions, the camera angles, yes, absolutely. But what they were doing with the costumes was out of this world in terms of the stylization. The costumes themselves, I think, were a character. Um, so that I find very, very exciting. And I've certainly been looking at all of, uh, of Rambova's designs. She's absolutely an artist. Stephen, how about you? About what, what silent films have, have, have you been watching have resonated with you? Well, it's interesting because uh, I, I actually have this like pact with my partner that w- if I were to die in some freak accident, there's certain movies that he would have to get rid of my, out of the video collection <laughs> because I, I watch a lot of different silent films and I've got a copy of Birth of a Nation in my collection uh, because I, I like knowing the context of why things are being made. And I like knowing when I'm reading uh, descriptions of films or um I like to actually see the actual film and see what they are, the filmmaker is making. Cause 
a very controversial film, not a good film at all. But like Nada mentioned, um, the ideas behind um, design and stuff like that were so stunning in the film. So I, I, I really do see those. I mean, I've actually watched probably more, um, like I have watched that one. I have watched a, a number of like Russian silent films, uh, a number of German silent films. Um, and I'd love to see the differences between each culture and stuff as well too. This film in particular, I, I did watch this one. You can actually watch it on said streaming service. I don't know if we want to advertise, <laughs> but um, it, this one I really watched because I really want to see where these three characters were putting their effort into. Uh, and it was so stunning to watch this film and knowing what they're doing. And, you know, some day, like some people today might laugh at something like this film, but the, 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 the acting is interesting. The, the, the art artistry of it is so stunning to watch. And it's such a loss that a lot of these filmmakers stopped making because of what society had said. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny what you mentioned about you sort of like allude to, to copyright. But what I love about the early silent era is anything pre-1924 is public domain. And so that stuff that you watch, if you find it on YouTube, all that stuff is legal. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to mention the other one that starts with N. But anyways. <laughs> oh, that one. That one. Okay. Yeah, actually, I've often been really, really disappointed with the 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 N-words. Um a uh, 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 selection in silent film, believe me, because when you're going, when you're 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 searching for an obscure Buster Keaton film, they're not the place to find it. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, I, they, there's one thing they did do very well. Um, a number of years ago, they put on something called Pioneer Black Filmmakers, and then they have a Pioneer uh, Women or Female Filmmakers, which is where Salome fit into. And uh, it, it, I, I'm, that's one thing I actually do love to watch. But um, but yeah, some other selections are less than less than well well chosen. <laughs> well, it's not just sometimes. I mean, you have the film quality, and we've lost so many films, so many silent films, just because of the the nature of the film. It was the film stock it was shot on. So the fact that we have as many as we do is always is always quite astounding. Um, just to ask about the the creation of of this show um did, was this written over the pandemic was it pre-pandemic tell me about about uh uh from from inception to completion when were you writing it and how did you how, what was that process like steven um so for me i did some research beforehand like many years ago about a number of the um more lesbian aspects of hollywood and i was fascinated by the book and i never i thought oh i should really keep this book around in case i want to do something and then I didn't keep it, unfortunately. I, I got rid of it at some point. And then uh, during the pandemic, so I'd worked with Rebecca Perry on a piece called Sarah Frank a few years ago uh, for the uh, Fringe, I guess it was 2021. And so um, we had worked to, on that. And she was talking to me about some of her own personal um, um, kind of rec or, um, reclaiming herself in a sense and, and her own identity. Um, and we had talked about certain things. I knew she loved Hollywood and I, I remember these stories about Allah and I was like, you know, something, this would be a great way for you to kind of introduce, reintroduce yourself a little bit into this really incredible character. Um, and on top of it, you don't, you won't have to sing anything, <laughs> but cause there's no singing in, in Allah, but it, it, it also offers you as a chance as an actor to do something a little different. And so, but then it became something bigger than that. And 
I, when I start to write, I wrote about like, I guess it was back in the late fall. I think I started to write it. And then we kind of were kind of going through the script a little bit. I, I, I stumbled the first time I started to write it. And then I found a second version and I went, that's what I want to talk about. And it allowed me to have just a lot of fun playing with these characters. Um, so the creation of it really was um, a little twofold of my love of Hollywood and this queer history, but also also hopefully writing something for Rebecca to have that's something a little different than what she normally does. Because I, you know, I'm I'm sure Netta can speak to this as well too. That sometimes, you know, in our in our little worlds of theater, people see us and go, "Well, that's what you should be doing. You should be doing only this." And I'm like, I'm like the opposite. I'm like, I love to throw actors into something that's nothing like what they usually do or something that really is very personal to them or very driven by them. And so that's where this piece kind of came to be, came together. Yeah. The, the whole, um, the, you know, the industry sees you when you become that one thing is, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's easy, right? It's, it's like you fall into it cause it's easy, but then there's that challenge of, of doing something completely new. If I could nerd out with you for a second, Steven, of you mentioned the stumbling the first time, just as a writing nerd. Um, what could you, what, if you could compare the, the first one where you stumbled and, and, and the, the, the current one, what was that difference? What was happening in that first, that first attempt that you call the stumble? Uh, as opposed to as to as opposed to this one. Okay, so the big thing this the first one was uh, it was set quite a number of years later uh, near the end of her life, um, and what involved it was really all her. It was really all her, and what it ended up being was these two <laughs> conservative Christians breaking into the Garden of Awa uh, and um, getting caught by her, and then being kind of forced to hear her life story to some degree. And it was, it was cute. I liked, there were parts of it I liked, but what I didn't like was that I really love how characters connect with each other and how they, um, the connections between people. I really, I love that. And so I was like, I'm, I start to lose connection with the, the, these two other characters and just telling her story. And I realized it was so expository and I didn't really want to be an expository play. I want you to feel something. I want you to connect with these people. I want you to see it kind of in their own, in their own life, right? In their own time and everything. So um, that's where I just ended up kind of scrapping that script and then going from scratch and then realizing that Salome was really my starting point. Yeah. How far into it were you, were you before you realized that it was not like coming together the way you wanted? Oh, very easily. I, it was like three pages and okay. I, it was like, I guess I started to write and you know, I'm very much an intuitive writer. So it's mm. like when I feel something's not working, I find it pretty fast. Mm. And it's like, Nope, not working. It happened to me once with um a 24 hour playwriting competition time. And I'm writing this play and I wrote like three or four pages and I realized it was like the meanest play I'd ever written. I, said, <laughs> I, just, I just hated it. So yeah, no, I, I realized what I love writing is characters. I like mm. trying to find that connection between characters. Not, I don't like characters who just kind of uh, exist purely for the sake of existing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this time and period of, uh, of Hollywood is particularly interesting and um i want to i want because i know there's something netta is interested in i know that you're interested in it Stephen, because of queer history but there are parallels um in terms of like the the idea of rolled back rights um and you know we're living in a time where there are people who 
want would love nothing more than to roll back the rights that queer, gay, and lesbian people, as trans, that the the I hate the term the alphabet mafia have uh, have have fought for and 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 had. And there's people who want to roll that back. This is. A, a place set in a time where that rollback is, is kind of imminent. Um, how for both of you, how does this play sort of shine a light on, on today? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I think Stephen put it so well talking about wanting to write a play where the three characters are present and they're living in the script. And he really has done that. And I'm so excited for people to see it because what these three characters Alan Azimova, Natasha Rambova, and, and Charles Bryant, um, they show us three different approaches to this kind of encroaching rollback of rights. Um, you know, you have one character who just refuses to see it and just wants to live in the joy, the present, uh, you know, and maybe the fantasy of how good things are without realizing the threat that's encroaching. You have one character who's entirely focused on the threat and in the end decides to save themselves perhaps at the expense of their community. And you have one character who I think in a way is trying to straddle both these things. Um, and I think that's, that's exactly where people end up. It's so hard, you know, it's always easy to look back in history and, and think we know what we would have done in the moment. We've all done that certainly in the last number of years, as we've seen so many historic assaults on on human rights and human dignity, we all think, well, had I been there when when such and such historic event happened, I would have done differently. But then the question is, what do you do now when it's happening in this very moment? And it can be very subtle. And I think that's what Stephen has done so well without being in any way too expository, looking at at the the gradual encroachment of this conservatism in Hollywood, the Hayes Code coming in, with it, it starts, you know, and I'm sure Stephen can speak to this more, but it starts as whispers. You know, I heard that this person named Hayes has been hired by the government. I heard that they're drafting a code that's going to uh, legislate what can and, and can't be done in Hollywood. But when it's only whispers, it's really hard to believe that it's going to affect you. And I think that's the lesson we can take from this play and that we can and, and really have to apply every day now going forward, um, that when you start to hear whispers, you have to start paying attention. You have to start finding out very, very quickly what you can do because it's shocking how quickly whispers, uh, things happening maybe in a different community can start to affect you and your community and your work. And we know we have to stand up before it affects us because generally before it affects you, it has affected somebody more vulnerable. The frightening thing about whispers is, sorry, Stephen, um, the frightening thing about whispers is it's almost like um, it's the chance to speak up, right? Yeah. The whispers are somebody testing the grounds like, oh, this thing might be happening. You mm-hmm. know, what is what is the what do the people think about this? Will they ignore it? Can we get away with it if we do it? It's like this this move forward towards something. Um, and, you know, whispers are important to listen to. Stephen, I, I jumped in right before you. Oh, no worries. I, I, I was going to kind of mention was, you know, these days we are taught, we're using this word called allyhood a lot. And uh, it's, a, it's a good word. Um, but there's two challenges with the whole idea of being allies and to speak up. Um, um, and the two challenges are that you have to 
care about someone else as much as you do yourself, which is a very challenging thing in somewhat, sometimes we have very individualistic society right now. Um, the other thing is that we can't make allyhood. Um, it, it's more than putting a post up. It's more than all that, but it's also, it can't be unattainable. It can't be, I, I said this Monday, it can't be enlightenment. It can't be something that we're constantly told we can't do. <laughs> Um, there are things we can do every day. And you know something, you know, we're talking about whispers uh, and I, I can tell you a personal story. Literally this happened like last week for me, which was my partner and I have just moved out to Kitchener. Um, and we decided for the first time ever to put a, a gay, a gay rights flag or a gay flag out there. That's a, the, the progress flag actually. And we kind of staple it to our, our porch, our out front and someone took it down. Someone stole it. And, uh, I mean, it could be the wind, but I don't think so. <laughs> but I mean, those are small steps when you start to see things going back and forth where the simple act of just putting a flag out can cause a reaction to someone else. And that's, you know, that's where we start. Like what's, where do we start when we need to speak up for things? Cause sometimes those little whispers, those small little things, they start to add up really fast and we do need to speak up and say something when those things happen. Exactly, Stephen, and speak up before it gets too bad. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now, Netta, Stephen and I have spoken a couple of times before, so I'm going to jump to the part where I ask you one of my favorite <laughs> questions. All right. Um, and my favorite question to ask uh, my guests is about their theater origin stories. <gasps> um, what is it that drew you to this? Um, and made you want to do this? What was the path that brought you to where you are now? Oh, my God. Well, um, I can tell you the exact moment. I was four or five years old. I was a little kid with curly red hair wearing a velvet dress in the early 90s, and I was in the dressing room at the Leopoldslands Theater uh, saying, muzzle tub and break a leg to my dad before he went on stage to do a production of Joseph. And so I was, I was a backstage kid. My dad's an actor. My mom had been uh, in theater as well when I was young and I got bit by the bug very, very young. And it was all I ever wanted to do. Um, I think I got my first agent when I was about 11 years old. I ended up going into a pre-professional you know, arts high school environment doing theater there. And, uh, and then I hit the age of 18 and I had a very early midlife crisis. I just scheduled it a few years in advance uh, and freaked out and was not sure if I could pursue this path. You know, I think that's one thing about being exposed to it young. You see all the wonderful things about being an actor. I saw my dad just getting to travel and, and getting to have so much fun and tell stories and meet all these wonderful people and, and live in that magical Narnia backstage world. Uh, and I also saw the difficulty of waiting by the phone and of having mm -hmm. to have other jobs and financial insecurity. And I think there were a lot of reasons that I wasn't ready to uh, to head right into the industry when I was 18. But for whatever reason, I left, I gave it up, and it took me 12 years to come back. I went off and I had every other job I ever thought I might want to do. <laughs> I was a bartender, I 
cleaned toilets in a hotel. I was a tour guide, a travel writer. I worked for the Ministry of Heritage for a while. I was a theater administrator. I, for a very bizarre two years, was the manager of digital media for a large Canadian media conglomerate. Uh, It was very strange, didn't suit me at all. And I think underneath it all, all I ever wanted to do was get back to theater, but I needed 12 years to run in circles until I found my way back. And when I came back, which is now only five years ago, still relatively recent, but at that point I had done everything else. I had tried all the other paths. I had tried to live without being an actor and uh, nothing nothing was as good as being in theater. So I found my way back and uh, now nobody's going to be able to get rid of me. Now, was there something in particular that drew you back in or was it just that you'd exhausted everything else and realized that theater was what you had to do? <laughs> Done literally everything else I could possibly do. No, well, that I can tell you the exact moment as well um, and give a shout out to an incredible uh, local performer. I was, I had just gone through some other major life changes um, personally and I had gone out to the theater one night in October 2017 by myself. I was at Aki Studio and I was seeing the premiere production of Other Side of the Game. And I was watching Virgilia Griffiths just absolutely knock this role out of the park. And I was sitting in the front row and all of a sudden I, I kind of started shaking. I felt a panic attack coming on, like examining what is this feeling and the feeling was, oh my God, I want to be doing that. Oh my God, she's so good. She's so good. I want to be that good. Uh, and I didn't know what to do because I was at the theater by myself, sitting front row in a one-act play. I couldn't exactly leave and go into the lobby and finish having my panic attack in peace. So dug my nails into my leg and watched the rest of this brilliant play by Amanda Paris and this brilliant performance by Virgilia and uh, got home and you know, I think it's a feeling so many of us who are artists and who have these nonlinear career paths think we have these moments of a fear of wasted time, a fear of lost opportunity. And that was the first feeling I had realizing that I really missed acting was, oh my God, I've wasted over a decade. And then the feeling that came after that was, who says? Who says it's a waste? Who says this isn't exactly the right time? And so that was it. Virgilia's incredible performance in that play was the the kick that I needed to realize that I missed acting so much and that it was the right time to get back to it. So blessedly, I had an agent who had scouted me when I was a teenager and who, when I left acting, had always said, well, you call me first if you ever decide you want to go back to the business. And I did <laughs> just 12 years later, gave her a call and said, uh, were, you, were you serious about that? Did the offer expire after a decade? And she was like, no, yeah, come in, we'll chat. <laughs> Bless good agents. There's the the that that fascinating uh, uh, moment of of you know realizing that this is what you want to do, mm-hmm. and that idea of 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 wasted time sort of like jumps out at me because in some ways, and this is I think is kind of valuable. In some ways, you now have a life experience that some other people in the theater don't have. Like you've worked like I hate saying it, quote unquote, real jobs, <laughs> um, and so. Like you have that to draw on that, that, you know, what is it like doing, doing like the quote unquote regular job, which is uh, uh, something that, that, that sometimes people who are in the theater don't necessarily get to have. Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, um, I burned out uh, from, from 
producing a, a massive production of something and and went through the motions and then like was like i'm giving up theater and I, I left theater for a while until like five years later a friend was like i want you to do this i want i have a play i want you to be in it and i was like i don't do that anymore and then they hit me with the play that i couldn't say no to in the role that mm-hmm. i couldn't say no to so i was like oh you know my weakness you're my kryptonite and and then i figured out how to balance work and 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 theater which was a an important thing to to learn that what it was possible yes yes i think that's exactly it and in the end you know once i got over that initial wave of sort of the, the shame and the anxiety of of you know the, that myth of missed opportunity what i found was i'm so glad that i left when i did i don't think that I don't think it would have been the right time for me to be an actor at 18. I don't know who I would be as a person, let alone as an actor, had I gone to theater school at 18 and gone straight into trying to make this my entire life. I'm so grateful for the experience I have. And I think it it certainly makes me a better actor, but probably also a better colleague. Um, and as you said, you talked about, you know, this idea of of balancing the business and the art side of it. I think I have that. You know, I've made a living in a million different ways since I was 18 years old. And that leaves me with this confidence that in one way or another, I can hustle. I can always find a way to pay my bills, whether it's in the arts or not. And for me, that has brought so much joy, so much more joy to being an actor, because I don't think I ever walk into the room desperate. You know, for me, it's just this amazing playtime and I'm endlessly grateful for it because for 12 years I didn't have it. Mm -hmm. So I I feel that the career I have now, um, which I certainly hope I'm going to continue to build and it's going to go in directions that that I can't imagine today, but I think it's sustainable in a way that it never would have been had Mm -hmm. I entered this field uh, as Mm -hmm. as a young teenager in my early 20s. You know, and I think to, to bring it back around to, to talking about this beautiful play that Stephen's written, so much of what this play is about is about how to sustain a career as an artist in a world that is not necessarily set up for your success. You know, people who so desperately want to make art that is true to them. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Stephen, just to bring you back in, I think I would be remiss if I did not talk about um, two other things. First off, um, the kids show that you were talking about, which is called The Prince's Big Adventurer. Um, and that's something that people see at Kids Fringe. If you could just give us a quick uh, uh, elevator pitch as to what that show is. Uh, so The Prince's Big Adventure is about a young prince who's forced by his mom and dad to rescue a princess from a tower. But his father realizes he's not very good at that type of thing. So he hires an adventure in the village to go with them, who he ultimately falls in love with. <laughs> um, and so it, it was my chance to write sort of a gay fairy tale. Um, it was my chance to kind of break a few of the rules and stuff like that. But it was also a chance to write music for the first time, which I've never done. Um, I hadn't been able to do most of that stuff. I, I'm not a musician in that sense. I like just writing lyrics. But um, it's a show that I'm, I'm making with a lot of friends. Um who are people, all people who I've worked with over the, over the last number of years, a uh, very diverse group of friends, um, and a chance just to kind of do something a little different. And I, I love I loved doing that. I love kind of playing against the type a little bit. Hmm. Yeah. The other show that I want to talk about is Three Ordinary Men. Now, I had the pleasure of talking with the, 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 the three gents who are starring in that show um, uh, just a little while ago. And um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about about that show because you know it's on now and also it's 
you're uh, you're a person who is a history buff, and a lot of the plays that we've talked about in the past are are historical. So is so is uh, the Garden of Allah. So is so is Three Ordinary Men. Um, when you started working on Three Ordinary Men, was that something that that you uh, took to 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 cahoots? Is that something you were already re- working on? What's the story of the creation of that show? Okay, so I I, I actually I, I'm always sit back and go, when did I actually tell myself I was going to write that story? And I can't seem to remember <laughs> when I did that. All I do remember is uh, I had found that story, um, and I said to myself that one thing I really crave when I'm writing is the idea of connection between characters and connection between people who are different. And that seemed like the one of the most perfect connection stories I've ever seen or read. And I said, I want to write a play around that. And then when I went diving into it, I realized that most people who, when they wrote about it, they wrote about what happened after the murder. They all talked about that. And I said, but I want to know why these three guys started to do what they're doing. That's what I want to know. Cause I think that's a story that we all need to hear right now. We need to know that when you're facing horrible times and stuff like that what keeps you going and that's what these guys are about um how it got to cahoots so, well well so, so obviously tasha um directed seat next to the king uh years uh back in 2017 and we still had a great relationship and she knows i'll just start sending her scripts like whenever i feel like it um and often sometimes she'll <laughs> Uh, either tell me, no, don't write that. And that makes me want to write it more. And then sometimes she's like, nope, that's not interesting. I'm like, okay, that's totally cool. And so with this script, um, I remember sending it to her and literally like, I, I don't think it could be even more than 30 seconds to a minute later. She called me and said, you're writing about them. And that was one of the most powerful things for me because it was obviously a story so personal to her. Mm. Um, and it was something that I knew that she, um, really, I, I, it's someone I, I, I knew instant instantly that it's someone who I would trust with that script. Um, so we had, uh, she, she loved it. And she said, if she, if ever get a chance to direct, that'd be great. But at that point we weren't actually, she wasn't actually at, at cahoots at that point in time. And so when she ended up taking on, um, uh, the, um, uh, artist director at cahoots, I made it very clear to her. I said, you know, I know I'm not your mandate. I know I don't fit in there. So I'm never going to ask you to do something that I know you can't do. Um, and so I didn't really think about it being a cahoots project. And then she messaged me, I think it was her and Lisa, I think it was at the time and said, Stephen, we, we want to do three ordinary men for cahoots. And I said, are, are you sure about this? <laughs> Just cause, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and she said, no. No, we, we, it's, it's a piece that we'd like to do. I'm like, mm. okay, then I'm, then I'll go with you on this one. Um, cause you know, I, I do, you know, the idea of representation is again, so important in theater mm-hmm. right now. Um, it has to be represented across the board. Um, and so, you know, kind of knowing that, you know, with that one small exception of being queer <laughs> gay myself, um, I didn't quite fit into the mandate for cahoots, but she has made me feel very welcome to do that. Um, and I felt very comfortable there. I also know that there's more space open up there for other people to come in as writers as well, too. So I just, I don't take any moment for granted with this. Um, and it's to tell you, just, you just, just found out today that we're completely sold out for the entire run. So obviously people are connecting with this piece. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations on that. That's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, we just found out. Yeah, we were new. We're getting close. It's a very small house. That's one thing we got to tell people. It's a very small house of only well, 40 people. Um, and it's because Tasha really loves the incubator space. I, it's mm. a really beautiful space. It's a really intimate space. And that's what Tasha loves. She loves intimate plays in that sense. And so, yeah, no, we just found out today. And of course, now we know it's going to be that moment when we have friends come to us going, so are you sure there's no more tickets? <laughs> and we have to say something, but you know, who knows, you know, um, you know, maybe I'll come back again after this. That's a possibility. You know, I know Tana, she always likes to do that. And we are always talking about um, the 10th anniversary of seat next to the king. Mm. We've already talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, I mean, incredible that that, that show is sold out. Um, and uh, congratulations to you and to to Cahoots and and all the guys. The the heading into Fringe, which you know, um, I guess as we record this tomorrow is the the launch for Fringe as they release the schedule and the programs and all that sort of stuff. Um, this is the first in person Fringe that we've had in two years. And uh, I'm curious for both of you um, how you feel about that and, and how you are preparing to uh, uh, have a show in person once again. Do you want to speak to that, Netta? I don't know. Uh, well, yeah, go, you go ahead, Netta. Sorry, I'm not on my own computer and I lost the mouse, as you do sometimes. I'm so excited. I mean, what else can I say? I'm so incredibly excited to be back doing live theater. And something that I have found, you know, both in the shows that I've done since reopening and also working as a front of house staff member at Buddies and Bad Times is that theater audiences have such a high value placed on community care. So I would say, you know, in terms of COVID safety, there are few public spaces that I feel more safe than in a Toronto theater right now where people are wearing masks. You know, they're thanking the front of house staff members saying, you know, thank you for checking vaccines. I'm so glad that I can come to this and feel safe. So knowing that we can create this experience for people, that we can have this Toronto summer staple that we've missed for so long and do it, you know, in the relative safety as much as we can given the circumstances, that makes me really excited and really proud to be a part of that. And I can only imagine the work that's going into it from the fringe organizers side. So I want to give them a shout out, certainly. For me, um, it's so exciting to be back to live. So I did four digital projects. So I did one for both fringes and then one for uh, Hampton fringe as well. And then one for next stage. And I can just tell you, I mean, I love, I loved working on digital projects. They were, they're very creatively fun for me. Um, it kept me writing through um, the COVID years when, oh, oh, am I recording still? Hello? Yeah, sorry. You're good. You're good. I'm good. Oh, sorry. And so anyway, sorry. Um, and so, um, getting back into, but live theater is just a, a different kettle of fish and I love it. I love the challenge of it. I love the audiences that you know are going to be there. I love the fact that um, you get to get more feedback from people. Like I, with digital projects, you just never knew who was listening, who was coming, who was taking that chance to invest in something that's digital when they could be going on to their TVs or and do streaming services or something, or it's, it's, Live theater, there is simply nothing like it. 
and to be actually back and hear, having like right now I'm enjoying so much hearing, having people hear the words from three ordinary men. And I can't wait for them to hear the garden of Allah. And I can't wait for them to hear the prince's big adventure. And it's like, it, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The thing with, with digital theater and, and, you know, you've got two ways of doing it and, and we've all sort of seen various attempts at it. You've got your live stream, you've got your pre-recorded and, uh, uh, or a combination of the two. Um, I think I, I sort of went looking for a while early on in the pandemic to see like, what, what could you use effectively for live stream? Cause I felt like, you know, if you were going to record it, then maybe that wouldn't be as theatrical and then maybe live stream, but there's no good platform for live streaming theater. Um, there's no way for you to hear the audience. There's no way for, for at least effectively so many problems. And I wish that, I wish that was something that somebody found a need to, to tackle over the pandemic, but I'm so glad to be seeing things back in, in person. Um, even though I have to admit, I still, uh, you know, I've spent like two years avoiding people. So there's always that moment going into a theater where it's sort of get a little hand sweaty sort of thing going on. Well, I can say that, you know, doing some digital projects um, was that um, in both in two, uh, two or three of the cases um, where we did them, we actually tried to make it as theater as possible in like having the actors fully off book. Mm -hmm. um, fully, um, present for like one, like one recording only. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and I found, found that was a very different experience and a very enjoyable experience because again, it, it brought it to be as theater as we can make theater without the audience, without it being completely live, but at least yeah. it was like one take. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I mean, as once you go beyond that, then you're getting into like film and things like that. But I think there is possibility. I also still uh, maintain that there should, I think there should be possibility for uh, live stream in like the future. Um, uh, as far as like maybe live streaming a performance of a show, that sort of thing. I still think that that expands the reach of the theater and allows us to, to present to people that maybe couldn't get to the theater and things like that, I even though there are logistics that. around that. Yeah, you know, I think Phil, in so many ways, the pandemic, uh, you know, has been horrific, no question about that. It's also showed us what's possible, particularly in terms of community care and accessibility. Um, and, you know, if we were able to find the money, <laughs> if the grants were able to come through from mm. government funding, to make it possible to live stream productions, um, to have longer, safer, gentler rehearsal periods, you know, I, I don't think that there's any reason that that should stop you know, the pandemic, we know it's not over. And also for so many people who, uh, who have lived experience of disability, who are immunocompromised, it isn't always safe to be in a large crowd full of people. Um, theater spaces are not always accessible, and certainly they should be. But, um, but we can also have these other offerings that make theater and the arts more accessible. And I think, while we can celebrate that the need for uh, for large scale digital theater is over in terms of the fact that we can go back into the theater, we should absolutely be live streaming. We should have digital offerings. We should have all the accessibility measures that we've now gained experience on on how to do. And that, I think that should just become part of the norm, norm going forward, as well as safer work environments, not coming in if you're feeling ill, um, being able to rehearse from home or have flexible work days, you know, if you have young children or, or for any reason or another job. I think there are a lot of lessons that we've learned from this pandemic that can make a career in the arts, as well as being an audience member, so much more accessible. 
You know, I I was reminded recently of an incident when I was in theater school. And the incident was I was sick, like like legitimately sick. And I missed a day and I got a call from the administrator at the school saying, I understand that you're sick, but if you miss another day, you're out of the school. And like that kind of working in the theater is is li- literally unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Like you're going to you're asking me to to go to the school and affect my my coworkers, my, my colleagues with whatever it is I'm bringing in. But I think that, that that's something that was just assumed that would happen uh, in, in the industry. You, you're sick, you fight through it, you come in, that sort of thing. And I, I, I'm hoping that with our understanding from the, the, the pandemic that, that maybe that's not the best thing that we could do. Yeah, I absolutely agree. We can take such better care of each other. We can make this such a such a kinder profession. Totally. Netta, Stephen, I want to thank you both for for sitting down with me today. I'm so looking forward to uh, the Garden of Allah, and uh, uh, I look forward to seeing you guys at whatever fringe tent you happen to be at. <laughs> thank you so much, Phil. This has been so much fun. Thank you very much, Phil. This is I really always enjoy your interviews. 